This is 15-Minute History, a podcast for educators, students, and history buffs featuring the minds and talents of the University of Texas at Austin. 15-Minute History is a partnership of Not Even Past and Hemispheres in the College of Liberal Arts at UT Austin. Welcome back to 15-Minute History. I'm Joan Neuberger, professor of history at UT Austin and editor of Not Even Past and your host for this episode. Today, our guest is Peniel Joseph, a professor in the history department and the LBJ School of Public Policy at UT. He holds the Barbara Jordan Chair in Ethics and Political Values. And his 2014 book on Stokely Carmichael has just been issued in paperback, which gives us a chance to talk about this remarkable African-American activist and one of the founders of the Black Power Movement. Peniel, welcome to 15-Minute History. (laughs) Thanks for having me, Joan. In 1966, 50 years ago, Stokely Carmichael called for Black Power during a rally for racial justice in Greenwood, Mississippi. Let's talk about how he got to that moment. Maybe you could start by telling us about his origins and early life, and we could start there. Yeah, Stokely Carmichael was born in Port of Spain, Trinidad, June 29th, 1941. Comes to the United States in 1952, uh, shortly before his 11th birthday. And he's reunited with his mother, who had gone in the 1940s, and a couple of his sisters. So he's reunited with his mother and his father, who were there. He was raised by his aunts and his maternal grandmother in Port of Spain, Trinidad. And so he's very bright, very precocious. He lives in the Morris Park section of the Bronx. He's living in a predominantly Jewish, predominantly Italian, predominantly Irish neighborhood. He's one of the only black students at Bronx Science, and he's the class of 1960, and he's an activist. So his origins are really coming out of that milieu. Mm-hmm. So he was an activist even in high school. He was an activist in high school. Bayard Rustin, the black social democratic activist, is one of his mentors. Gene Dennis Jr., whose father was a high-ranking official in the American Communist Party, was one of his best friends. And he's an activist, an organizer. He's reading in Marxist study groups. A lot of his friends are um, Jewish Americans who are at Bronx Science. He's going to their homes. And he's also hanging out in Harlem, uh, and, and listening to Miriam Makeba and listening to black street speakers, black Pan-African street speakers in Harlem. And then he went to Howard University in the early 60s, and he was active there in SNCC in the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. Yes, absolutely. So one of the things I was curious about is what role does nonviolence play in his thinking at this point? Well, I think it plays a pivotal role. I think early on, he agrees with Bayard Rustin and with SNCC that nonviolence is going to be the best strategy and the best tactic to transform Jim Crow and and the segregated South, but also the segregated North. They do sit-ins along Baltimore's I-40, Maryland I-40 route. They do sit-ins in Washington, D.C. at the Justice Department. So they're against segregation everywhere, and he believes that it's the proper tactic. Now, he's never a philosophical believer in nonviolence or a religious believer in nonviolence, a la uh, John Lewis. He was a freedom writer as well, right? He's a freedom writer. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, that's the first time he meets John Lewis. John Lewis is a freedom writer as well. Stokely and the Howard Group, they were called the Nonviolent Action Group, or NAG. They're very supportive of the Freedom Rides, and Stokely becomes a freedom writer in June of 1961. He's on a train from New Orleans to Mississippi, and he's arrested in Jackson, Mississippi, on June 8th, 1961, and he's going to be transported a week later to Parchman Penitentiary, where James Farmer of CORE, Congress of Racial Equality, John Lewis of SNCC, all these different people are, and he's going to spend about 49 days in Parchman Penitentiary, and he actually celebrates his 20th birthday in a prison farm. And that was a notorious 
prison farm, right? Absolutely. David Oshinsky has written the definitive <laughs> history of that about about Parchman uh, Penitentiary, notorious, the worst prison farm in Mississippi. Mm-hmm. And then in 1964, when he was working in Mississippi, he joined up with Fannie Lou Hamer, who he said was one of his personal heroes, actually, then. Can you tell us about what he was doing there and how he ended up working with her? In Mississippi, he's the second congressional district director of Freedom Summer, which is an effort by SNCC, led by Bob Moses, to register people to vote and also set up 41 different freedom schools. They set up a free Southern theater. They teach civic lessons, literacy lessons. They help people with food and raise money. There are people who are nurses there. So it's this real comprehensive summer where a thousand students, predominantly white, come down to help with the civil rights effort. And Stokely was doing day-to-day organizing. He was also coordinating different groups of people. And Fannie Lou Hamer is part of the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party, which is an effort by black sharecroppers to attend and be represented at the 64 Democratic National Convention. Yeah, why, why was that important? Why did they set up their own Democratic Party, basically? Well, the Mississippi <laughs> representatives were um, racially exclusive, So the Mississippi delegation were really basically white supremacists who did not believe in racial justice or black equality. So they set up an interracial group. There's about 68 delegates, and I believe there's two white delegates. Their group was open to white Mississippians, but there was only two who were sort of courageous and political enough to be a part of it. So he went with Fannie Lou Hamer to Atlantic City, where the Democratic National Convention was meeting. And what happened there? Well, they're protesting against the murders of Schwerner, Cheney, and Goodman. They're carrying around large placards of those civil rights workers who were murdered that summer. And they basically are trying to embarrass President Johnson and convince him to seat their interracial integrated delegation. He refuses to do that. The Mississippi delegation walks out, and there's eventually going to be a so-called compromise where they're going to get two non-voting seats at the convention, but there's a promise that by 1968, there'll be no more segregated delegates who are allowed to come into the convention. So their party didn't actually get seated, but there was a compromise. And yet, didn't Stokely see this as a kind of defeat? I mean, this was his last role in mainstream politics. Absolutely. Stokely sees this as a major betrayal, and he's going to move on to Alabama because of this. He's going to move on and become part of the Lowndes County Freedom Organization in Alabama, which is nicknamed the Black Panther Party. And he's going to be a big advocate of radical, independent politics. And what did he do in Alabama that year? Well, by 1965, he actually enters Alabama along with Martin Luther King Jr. during the Selma to Montgomery demonstration. He's marching with King. But when King and the Southern Christian Leadership Conference leaves, he stays in a small county in Alabama called Lowndes County, which is in the buckle of the Black Belt in Alabama. And they basically organize with sharecroppers. They organize with Black women. They organize local people to try to run for seven political offices. Uh, Lowndes County has no mayor, but it's things like Board of Education, Sheriff, Coroner, Tax Assessor. He stays in Alabama for over a year and they get over 900 votes. And the only reason they don't win in the 66 elections is because of uh, racial intimidation. Mm -hmm. But by 1970, black elected officials take over Lowndes County. So, well, now we come back to Black Power. It's 1966, and he's at this rally, and he calls for Black Power. So what does that mean for him? Is it a big shift in his thinking or an evolution of his thinking? I'd say it's more of an evolution. 
And he's describing black power as radical black political and cultural economic self-determination, that black people were going to be able to define what was going on for themselves. And I think that's an evolution. I think in 62 or 63, he would not have said black power. I think he says at that rally that he's been arrested 27 times and they're not going to take it anymore. And this was a collective organizational decision, too. SNCC had said they didn't want to say freedom now. They were going to say black power because black people needed political and economic power. Now, the FBI under J. Edgar Hoover targeted and slandered a lot of African-American activist leaders. Was Stokely Carmichael also a target of FBI attacks? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I would say, except for Martin Luther King Jr., I mean, he's going to be the number one target from 66 to 68, 69. And that's because of his anti-war position and his black power position. So it's going to be FBI, local authorities, State Department, CIA, the White House as well. President Johnson requests twice weekly briefs on what Stokely's activities are. Hmm. So he's really going to be one of the most surveilled people in American history. That's uh, a lot of effort to, a lot of government effort to go after a liberation movement in the United States. Absolutely. Um, and he becomes closer then to the Black Panther Party. Is it connected to the attacks on him or how does that happen? Well, I think his relationship with the Panthers goes back to Lowndes County and the Lowndes County Panthers give Huey Newton and Bobby Seale, two activists in Oakland, California, the inspiration to do the Black Panther Party that we all know of and think of today. He knows them. He meets with them in 66, 67. By 67, when he's overseas, he's drafted as field marshal with provision to give revolutionary law, order and justice uh, on the eastern half of the United States. And he eventually becomes honorary prime minister. So the Panthers were, there's a point where they're very close, but he's also close to Martin Luther King Jr. because of the Meredith March. They were on that march in 66 where he unveils the Black Power slogan. And he feels deeply for King. At first met King in 1963. So he's close to multiple sides of the movement, which is why I see him as this bridge figure between mm -hmm. civil rights and Black Power. Yeah, you say in the, in the book that he's situated in between Martin Luther King on the one hand and Malcolm X on the other. Could you talk about what that meant in practical terms? Yeah, in practical terms, it meant that he really understood civil rights organizing in a way that certain black power activists just flat out didn't uh -huh. because they didn't participate in that kind of organizing. So they might have done organizing in the North. Malcolm certainly did grassroots organizing in the North in the West Coast. But Stokely was a part of every single major demonstration and event from 60 to 66. And so he did not belittle civil rights organizing. He felt it needed to be radicalized, but he also understood that Martin Luther King Jr.'s nonviolence was extraordinarily powerful. So he never belittled nonviolence. He just felt that we were at a breaking point nationally and people had to consider self-defense. So I think he can speak to both sides and he criticizes the Black Panthers as well. He criticizes the Panthers for thinking that revolution wasn't going to be this long, proactive, day-to-day -day struggle. The Panthers had never slept on the floors of shotgun shacks in Alabama and Mississippi. They had never faced that kind of racial violence. They faced a different kind of racial violence in the East Coast and the West Coast. So he's a very interesting figure in that sense. He loves people like Kwame Nkrumah and Fidel Castro, but he worked with Ella Baker, the revolutionary organizer from North Carolina who organized SNCC. Her line was, strong people don't need a strong leader, and talked about participatory democracy and grassroots leadership. So he's an extraordinary figure because of the experiences he had, and he reveres Bayard Rustin. I don't think there's a figure who sort of reveres 
Bayard Rustin, Fannie Lou Hamer, Ella Baker, Fidel Castro, Martin Luther King Jr., Malcolm X, and then Kwame Nkrumah and Sekou Touré. It's an extraordinary... And was revered by all of them as well. Exactly. Right? It's an extra- extraordinary panorama. Yeah. yeah. And and you mentioned international as well. So he becomes involved in international pan-African movements and international black power movements, right? Absolutely. His trip to overseas in 67 is huge here. He's at the Dialectics of Liberation Conference in London with Allen Ginsberg, Angela Davis. He's a legend in London and gets kicked out of London. He's in Cuba for a month. And Fidel Castro personally drives him up with the translator through the Sierra Maestra, shows him what the revolutionary groups were doing. He goes to the Middle East and he's in Egypt and he's in all these different places. He goes to Africa. He goes to Paris. The State Department is hot on his trail because Cuba is a place you're not supposed to go to. So he's an extraordinary um, figure. The one little anecdote, Harry Reasoner, CBS, has a great line where he shows Stokely Carmichael denouncing Lyndon Johnson in the war in Vietnam during a rally with 5,000 people in Paris. And Stokely says he wants the United States to be defeated in Vietnam. And all Harry Reasoner can say is Stokely Carmichael from Paris last night. And that's it. There's no... Well, you know, if you look up Stokely Carmichael online, you see a couple things that are pretty negative about him. Mm-hmm. One is that he broke with SNCC over the inclusion of whites in the movement. Could you talk about that a bit? Yeah, that's not true. So SNCC by 66, end of 66, is not allowing whites into the group. There's not many in there, but there's just a group of black nationalists in in SNCC who want that vote. Stokely is not a part of that. He's chairman, and the newspaper, New York Times, said he instigated that. Not true. He had great relationships with whites. He starts to believe that whites need to organize separately because white racism is so endemic that it's only white activists who can really talk to white people. So instead of going into communities like Newark, there needs to be white student organizing that are anti-racist in white communities. Mm -hmm. And he he also is often quoted with a pretty sexist comment that he makes on a TV show. Does that represent his relationship with women? Well, no, I mean, that's the position of women in SNCC is prone, and that's from 1964. And it's really, that is a a joke made in jest. Mary King, Casey Hayden, people who were around in Waveland, Mississippi, have attested to this. But certainly that's been used to sort of vilify him and marginalize him. I think Stokely, when you interview the women in SNCC, they'll say he was more progressive than most men. Did he have sexism? Absolutely. Absolutely. This This was the 60s. This was the 1960s. But was he a rampant misogynist and a deep sexist? No. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Great, Peniel. Could you maybe, I mean, he's obviously been talking about him now as this incredibly active and committed person who's able to talk to all these different people. What would you say were his greatest achievements and legacy? What what would you say would be his greatest legacy? Yeah, Stokely Carmichael becomes Kwame Touré by the 1970s. He takes on the name of Kwame Nkrumah and Sekou Touré, the leaders respectively of Ghana and Guinea and West Africa. He lives in West Africa from 69 to 1998, his death at the age of 57. He takes frequent trips back to the United States as a public intellectual and organizer. I'd say his greatest legacy is in 
raising black consciousness and organizing through not just black power, but also civil rights organizing as well. And part of his legacy is this idea of political revolution. He, he, he's a civil rights militant turned black power radical turned sort of third world revolutionary. And so it's Stokely by 66, he's at Berkeley talking about white privilege at Berkeley in 66. He's talking about radical humanism and why Vietnam should matter to white, black, Asian, everybody. It's Stokely who is very, very critical of the Johnson administration and comes out against the Vietnam War before Martin Luther King Jr. and becomes part of this anti-imperialist movement and this revolutionary pan-Africanist movement. And he also is unapologetic revolutionary. He never um, turns his back on the dreams of the 1960s, even within the context of Ronald Reagan and uh, Margaret Thatcher and sort of the neoliberalism mm -hmm. uh, of, of uh, the present, because that started, you know, decades ago. So I think his greatest legacy is in speaking truth to power and also always wanting to organize, organize him and Martin Luther King Jr., they find a common ground in their shared love for poor people. That's what's so interesting. So he loves poor people really irrespective of race and whether they're in Africa or whether they're in the Mississippi Delta. And he'll argue that it's the same group of people because mm -hmm. he'll talk about the food he ate in Africa, West Africa, and the food he ate in the Mississippi Delta. He says it's the same food. <laughs> and he found that extraordinary once he went to live in Africa. Mm -hmm. And are young activists today interested in Stokely Carmichael? I think increasingly they are becoming interested in Stokely Carmichael, Kwame Ture, but his legacy has still been shrouded. And part of this is that we can't rehabilitate revolutionaries in the United States. So one of the reasons why Martin Luther King Jr. has such a big legacy in America is because we've managed to only share some of his legacy. So there are parts of his legacy that remain hidden and shrouded in mystery. And the parts that we share with each other are the parts of racial integration and beloved community, but not King as a radical and revolutionary political activist who was nonviolent. So nonviolence has sort of smeared King in one sense and saved him in another. It smears him with people who are revolutionaries and radicals. They mistakenly believe you can't be a revolutionary and nonviolent. I think King, Gandhi, those folks definitively prove that you can be. <laughs> and he's saved by nonviolence because the establishment, the mainstream says, look, he was nonviolent, he's a good guy, and this is what we need to do. <laughs> so I think when we think about Stokely, it's very, very tough to rehabilitate that because he's talking about self-defense. By the time he, he goes to Africa, he's talking about revolutionary violence. He's a huge critic of capitalism. He's a avowed socialist, right? Hey, that's a lot to rehabilitate <laughs> in the United States. In the United States. Yeah. But I think one thing one thing young activists would do well to remember is his day-to-day -day organizing. And you know, what what was that like to organize in Mississippi at 19 and 20 years old? And what did that mean? Mississippi, Washington DC. He was in Cambridge, Maryland with Gloria Richardson, mm -hmm. um, being beaten by <laughs> by law enforcement and just uh, vigilantes and still dedicated his life to the movement. So dedication is a big part of his legacy too. <laughs>
Mm-hmm. Well, I really appreciated the opportunity to learn so much more about him, <laughs> reading your book, and um, it was kind of a revival for me. I mean, I grew up hearing his name and knowing that he was a leader, but I had no idea how many different things he was interested in and how committed he was to organizing. That's a really, I think, a really interesting and important part of his of his legacy. So, Peniel, thank you so much for coming in and talking to us. <laughs> thank you, Joan. For a transcript of this episode, images, and links to more information, visit our website at 15minutehistory.org. That's the numerals 15minutehistory.org. You can access our full catalog of episodes free of charge at our website and through the iTunes U app for iOS or the Tunes Viewer app for Android. You can also access the 10 most recent episodes through the Apple Podcasts app, Google Play Podcasts, Stitcher, and Overcast. 15-Minute History is produced in partnership between Not Even Past and the Hemispheres Outreach Consortium. Our executive editor is Joan Newberger, and our technical editor is Christopher Rose. Our audio engineers are the awesome folks in the Liberal Arts Instructional Technology Services, Jacob Weiss, Morgan Honecker, Will Kurtzner, Samantha Skinner, and Michael Heidenreich. Special thanks also to Michael DeLeon, iTunes U Site Administrator with Project 2021 and Educational Innovation. The University of Texas at Austin is a free speech campus. Opinions and viewpoints expressed in episodes of 15-Minute History do not represent the official position of the University of Texas or of any of its colleges or departments. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.